Thank you for listening to Together for Peace with Reem Gunaim. I want to start by welcoming everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us today on Together for Peace to continue the celebrations leading to International Peace Day. This year's call to action is Shaping Peace Together. Today on the 19th anniversary of the September 11th tragedy, this message is more vital than ever. September 11th was one of the most tragic human events of our century. It was a wake-up call for humanity to reflect on our gaps to peace. As we reflect on 9-11, we must address how we arrived to experience such a tragedy and how we can avoid another man-made disaster in any community across the globe. To address the 9-11 phenomena, we must understand that we live in a world where access to peaceful systems vary around the world. The disproportion to experiencing peace continues to deteriorate, causing a growing gap between peaceful and less peaceful societies. This gap serves as a catalyst for further polarization, violence, and conflict. We have a responsibility to take action and reverse this trend. We reverse this trend by protecting human rights for all people and engaging in positive conversations that build mutual understanding while embracing the inner work involved to learn and evolve. Each time we collaborate and grow together, we actively promote peace equality. Together for Peace is the virtual platform where we can start to fill the gap to solve peace inequality. Yes, we should never forget 9-11. What we must remember are the peace builders who served their fellow humans at a time when humanity failed them. We must remember the beautiful human stories that renewed our faith in humanity. Most importantly, we must remember the lesson that peace is the only means for our collective survival. Thus, peace is the most urgent call to action. Today, we are pleased to bridge the gap a little bit closer with a 9-11 hero, Jeremy Lucas. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thank and, you, Raven. Good to be here. And I would love to introduce you now. Jeremy Locus is an attorney, nonprofit executive, and advocate for the underrepresented. His passionate commitment to building a peaceful and just world is guided by his experience as a collaborative leader, public speaker, and international program developer. Jeremy is a leader who uses his voice to defend the weak and speak truth to power. With a heart of gold, Jeremy is a shining example of someone who spreads peace through love and forgiveness to all. Jeremy is an expert to, on philanthropy, international development, and peace. He has provided pro bono legal assistance, drafted legislation to protect humans and animals from violence, and co-authored international nonviolence training programs. I think of Jeremy as a true United States ambassador for peace. He is a teacher of nonviolence programs in Palestine, Israel, Namibia, and the United States. On top of his professional career, Jeremy has volunteered to serve on the boards of several nonprofits, nonprofit organizations, including the Youth Department, Greater Birmingham Humane Society, Creating a Culture of Peace, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation 
nonviolence training program, just to name a few. Jeremy is a living example of a peace builder. After being a witness to one of humanity's most tragic, tragic events of this century, Jeremy overcame his justified anger and funneled his energy into lasting peace action. Through his powerful storytelling, Jeremy will teach us precisely why we cannot justify a response to violence with more violence, but with compassion and forgiveness. Now, let's welcome Jeremy Locus. Thank you for joining us, Jeremy, one more time. Thank you so much, Reem. It's great to be here. Thank you. Okay, I'm really excited to get started. Um, and my first question is about Gucci. Um, can you tell us who Gucci is and share his story with us? Yeah, so this, this starts probably about a year before um, I moved to New York City. Uh, I was practicing law in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, and, and had started working with the Greater Birmingham Humane Society, uh, working with their board of directors, volunteering, uh, helping them raise money, doing all kinds of things. And um, Gucci was this uh, beautiful little dog that had had the unfortunate circumstance in his life to come across a group of, of teenagers who um, beat him, uh, hung him up by the neck, uh, lit him on fire uh, after drenching him in lighter fluid. And Gucci became the symbol of the work that we were doing to make it a felony to abuse animals. <clears throat> Alabama uh, obviously doesn't have uh, the most incredible record of being progressive on legislation, uh, specifically around animal abuse. Uh, but we put together a coalition of about 20 different animal organizations uh, in Alabama. And I helped write uh, a piece of legislation. Uh, we lobbied for that legislation in Montgomery and uh, we got passed the Pet Protection Act, uh, which makes the intentional uh, infliction of harm or killing uh, an animal a felony in Alabama. It was, it's one of the first in the country, um, this type of legislation that was back in 2000. So it's been close to 20 years now uh, since that legislation got put in place. And, and Gucci was our mascot. Uh, Gucci was the dog who uh, we could point to and say, look, um, whether we like it or not, there are elements in the world who will hurt uh, other creatures and and do terrible things to them and we feel like there should be some level of justice comes um, you know for that um, it was it was an incredible project it was amazing to work on that project and one of the reasons that 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 it was so important um, that this legislation was so important is because what research has shown is that animal abuse uh, is a precursor to the abuse of humans. Um, it almost always, uh, the, the Humane Society of the United States has a program called First Strike. And what they started understanding is that if you can stop abuse in a home, when someone goes out and finds out that an animal is being abused, that you can save a lot of people from abuse. So we started working with domestic violence shelters, um, and, and helping uh, women who were trying to escape domestic abusers uh, have a safe place for their animals to go. So we would 
uh, foster out animals for a certain period of time because most shelters did not take animals and uh, studies show that people who are being abused won't leave their beloved pets behind uh, with an abuser. So uh, it, it was a great, amazing piece of legislation that kind of continues to roll out this understanding of we can combat violence in a lot of different ways. So wow. uh, yeah, that was, that was about a year before I moved to New York. And I, you know what I love about Gucci's story more than anything? That I think there was a ceremony uh, for his 15th uh, birthday. Uh, yeah. And um, he had all the reasons in the world to not like humans. But he welcomed people wagging his tail. And I think Gucci taught, teaches us a lesson to this day mm. um, that in our hearts, we can't just forgive like animals and celebrate the joy we can share with others and move on. Um, so that's a huge lesson uh, that we're learning from our best friend, the dog. Uh, so, yeah. and Gucci is the symbolism of that. Um, yeah, so- Gucci had experienced a, yeah, an, an, an incident of violence in his life uh, and then had been surrounded by love and care uh, for most of the rest of, of his life. And um, whatever it is in that, in, in Gucci's spirit that, um, allowed him to accept that love and to move on with his life was just a, a wonderful, wonderful spirit to, to, to know. Thank you, Jeremy. And so um, that was the kind of work you've done. You were a lawyer in um, Alabama, Birmingham, and that's like a sample of the work you've done. Uh, later on, you moved to New York right before September 11. Can you tell us why did you move there? Yeah, so right around the time that the legislation for the, the uh, Pet Protection Act was being signed, uh, I was preparing to move to New York to go to seminary uh, to become an Episcopal priest. Uh, I was leaving my law practice behind for a little while and, uh, and decided to, to move to New York. And so I moved to New York, you know, driving through the Lincoln Tunnel in a rider truck packed with almost everything we had with you know, a dog and two cats in tow uh, about three weeks uh, before September 11th happened. And, um, you know, it was extremely hot the end of August in 2001. And um, we got everything, you know, loaded in and, and packed into the apartment. And then the next few weeks, we were just sort of getting settled in and seeing the city and getting ready to the, know the city. It's the first time I'd never lived outside of Birmingham as an adult. Um, and so moving to New York was, uh, was a big adjustment. Uh, it was pretty crazy. And I believe your birthday, your 30th birthday was right before September 11th? That's right. Yeah, I was, um, we've been there about three weeks and um, my 30th birthday is the, uh, was the 10th of September. So yesterday was, uh, you do the math, it was my, my 49th was yesterday. Um, Happy birthday. So, thank you. Yeah, and, and we, I just met a few people from the seminary, um, you know, so we had a small little gathering uh, at, a, at a Chelsea Piers restaurant, you know, on the West Side Highway, if anybody knows where that part is. The seminary is at 9th Avenue and 20th Street, so it's a real short walk over to the West Side Highway in Chelsea Piers, and we had a Junior's Cheesecake that night, and, um, you know, there were five or six people there that we that we knew and, and um, were just gotten to know, and and I, I, I kind of like to say that, that feels like it was the last normal night uh, that, that, that I remembered for quite some time. Yeah. 
And so then everything changed overnight. You were literally celebrating your birthday the night before, and the next day was a nightmare. Where were you when 9-11 happened, and how did you learn about it? Yeah, so it was our, actually, it was our first day of, of classes um, at seminary. Um, I had gotten up early, walked the dog over to the dog park and looked down the West Side Highway. You could see the, the Twin Towers um, there. Such a beautiful, beautiful morning um, on that, that morning. The air was just crisp and it just, it, it, you could feel fall coming. And um, walked back and, and went to class at probably around eight o'clock or so for one of our very first tutorial classes. And um, the seminary is a very old seminary, it's 200 years old and has all these little, uh, you know, kind of rabbit warren uh, places and buildings and rooms that you can go to. So the group that I was a part of was uh, sort of sequestered away in a room up on the third floor of this old building. And when we started, you know, somebody mentioned that something had happened, that maybe a plane had hit a building or something like that. but. Um, we all sort of had that image in our mind because we didn't know enough to imagine anything differently. There's an old picture of like the, the small little plane sticking out the side of the Empire State Building. If you've ever seen that, a, a little small tiny plane and you can just see the end of it. So we sort of, we sort of blew it off and um, a little while later, a member of the faculty came and got one of our classmates out of, out of our class and um, didn't say what it was about. Uh, we didn't know anything that was going on. And uh, it turns out later that his brother-in-law was in the World Trade Center um, when, when this all went down, was working on one of the high floors. Um, and they were trying to get in touch with him so that he could go and uh, be with his wife and they could find out what was going on with their family. But at that point in time, we didn't know. So probably about another 45 minutes later or hour later, we get out of class and the group of about eight of us start walking across the campus and we hear the chapel bells chiming, uh, calling everyone to the chapel. And as we're walking by, we, we run into one of the New Testament professors um, and he looks at us and he realizes that we don't know what has happened. We don't know what's going on at this point. And so, he takes us into one of the classrooms and tells us, you know, that by this point in time, uh, both of the towers had collapsed. And um, it's not the type of information that you can conceptualize. You know, you know, you don't conceptualize, you know, two of the tallest skyscrapers in the world uh, being reduced to rubble. And so we all went to our apartments, you know, to our families to, to see what was going on, started watching the, the television news broadcast, started trying to make phone calls um, to, to family members to let them know we were okay. And uh, the phone lines were jammed. Um, we were cut off, uh, the bridges and tunnels were closed, uh, the phone lines were, were, were jammed and uh, we saw hundreds and hundreds of people walking uptown covered in ash. How did you feel uh, seeing, knowing about this? Um, and what was your action, your next action? Yeah, so it was, um, it was terrifying. 
um, we were all afraid because at that point in time, we did not know if this was over with. Um, we didn't know Jeremy? what was coming back. I, I just lost you for a minute. Yeah, now you're back. I think your uh, your mic somehow, yeah. It, it very well could have been. Yeah. yeah, we didn't know what was happening. We were terrified and we didn't know if it was over with. Um, F-16s were screaming across the sky back and forth, you know, every 10 or 15 minutes. Um, all the airspace was closed. The city was just shut down. So we were really, really afraid. Um, and seeing the people coming up from, uh, from downtown, just stunned, you know, shell-shocked and, and stumbling, you know, like uh, something out of a, a horror film. Um, and, you know, we, I just, like I said, I just moved to New York. And so I really wanted to let my family know that we were okay. Um, and the other thing is that my sister had just recently started, you know, a few months before work for uh, American Airlines. And um, she was based in Boston at that time and was flying cross-country routes from Boston to California. And um, as we very quickly found out that the flights uh, at least a couple of those flights come, were leaving from, left from Boston with full tanks of gas uh, on, the, um, on those flights. So I didn't know where my sister was at the time. I didn't know if she was working. And so uh, it took several hours uh, to be able to be in touch with, um, with her. And uh, finally found out, you know, um, my poor mother uh, who was already terrified of me moving to New York and my sister living in Boston, you know, just within the previous few months, uh, she didn't know where either one of us were. You know, she, it took her some time to find out that uh, my sister was not working that day, that we were safe. And when I finally talked to her on the phone, um, her relief, uh, she just was crying and crying and crying with relief that, you know, both of her kids were okay. Um, but it was a, it was a terrifying day, um, and and it it that terror quickly turned into anger. Wow. Um, your sister miraculously escaped the flight because that was the flight that she took often. You said. Yeah, she had been. You know, she had worked those those cross country flights several times. You know, in the previous few months, you know, ahead of that, and it just so happened that that she was not uh, scheduled uh, to be working at that time, uh, and it's just a it's random chance, you know, that that somebody else had those was working that day and she wasn't. Wow. Um, so. After this chaos, seeing people covered in ashes, you're feeling fearful and confused, um, checked on your mom. Um, you went to ground zero and you decided to volunteer. Can you describe for us what was your um, volunteering experience like? Yeah, that, that day on September 11th, all the, most all of the students were, were instructed to basically stay home, uh, stay at the seminary, not go out. Um, 
again, no one knew what was coming next. Uh, no one knew um, if there were other bombs or other things planned. So we were all instructed to stay there all September 11th. And so we huddled together small groups of friends and people that we had just met. Um, some people went out to the street and you know would hand out water to people walking by. Um, but that day was one of, of kind of assessment of, you know, of, of just finding out what was going on. We heard sirens starting that day, uh, probably going on nearly 24 hours a day for several months. Um, the smoke from, from, September, from, the, from Ground Zero started coming uptown in the afternoons, every afternoon uh, for more than six months. Uh, we could smell the fires. <clears throat> the next day on September 12th, there was a call out for any volunteers uh, who wanted to go and do some relief work at a place called the Siemens Church Institute uh, on Fulton Street down near the Fulton Fish Market. And um, so about five o'clock in the afternoon, a group of us went down to serve meals. Um, all the roads in New York, the streets below 14th Street were all shut down. Uh, we got some kind of uh, emergency uh, badges made uh, that got us through all of the National Guard checkpoints, all of the police checkpoints. And we got to the Siemens Church Institute and very few people from Ground Zero, very few of the, the first responders were coming uh, to get food or water or anything they were not leaving their posts. They were working nonstop, 24, 36, 48 hours at a time. So late that evening, a groups of us decided that we would take whatever we could carry and walk towards uh, Ground Zero and hand out food and water to whoever we could find. Uh, so we were providing uh, relief to the first responders and the people who were, you know, all over New York working. You know, there's a lot of people remember the images of the firemen and the police officers and things like that, but very few people realize that, you know, the, the electrical workers for Con Edison, um, you know, were down there working nonstop. You know, the people who worked on the sewers uh, and the water in, in, in lower Manhattan we're trying to make sure that, you know, electricity was on where it needed to be and off where it needed to be and that the gas lines weren't still going. You know, just all sorts of logistical things happening. So we handed out water and food and then we'd run across a bodega that was shut down but would still, you know, allow us to take whatever they had and continue walking. And we'd probably been going for maybe I don't know, a couple of hours trudging through the, the dust and the debris and uh, looking up and seeing things hanging out of trees. Uh, and we turned a corner and this iconic image that, that was on the front of lots of magazines and newspapers of, of these three jagged pieces of the facade uh, coming out of the ground with bright lights behind it. And we walked right up to it within a hundred yards of it. And um, it was that moment that I was overwhelmed with the, the kind of 
sense that, you know, there are people struggling to uh, rescue people under that building and nobody in the world should ever be trying to dig their family and friends, fellow citizens out from under buildings, uh, no matter how it happens. It's just not something we should be doing. The rest of that night, we continued walking and we went back through Chinatown. And if you've ever been to Chinatown, you know that it is packed with people all the time. And um, this night on September 12th, it was uh, completely empty. <clears throat> we didn't see anyone. All the lights were out, all the shutters were down. Uh, in fact, it was so quiet and so still uh, and so dark, you could look up and see the stars from Lower Manhattan, which is uh, a near impossibility anytime. So we got back found a taxi around, you know, 14th Street and the taxi driver gave us a, a free ride home that night uh, as we've been working. And we went back down several nights that week um, around St. Paul's Chapel um, to set up relief stations for, for rescue workers. Um, kind of to, to a little story about how you get through these things in the middle of them. <clears throat> My friend Michelle and I were working that night and, and someone had donated all of the cigarettes from their bodega uh, to any of the police officers and firemen that needed cigarettes down at, um, at, at Ground Zero. And so we took an entire grocery basket full of cigarettes <clears throat> and just started walking around and giving them out and telling people that tonight was not the night to quit smoking. That if they needed cigarettes, we had them there'd be plenty of time to quit later. Um, and so that was part of the kind of this amazing uh, generosity that, that was being sent towards um, Ground Zero, the work we were doing. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, it's really powerful what you've shared in the, when I saw that um, image of the rubble, I actually, I'm from Palestine, so I had memories of, of Gaza and like how in humanity we all love life and we don't wish for death and um, even dogs. I, I'm curious to hear about the dogs, the rescue dogs, and uh, because you care about dogs. I'm curious how, if you can describe for us their, their experience, like how difficult it is for, for us to witness such thing. I think the dog story could yeah, it, it, it struck me on uh, October the 4th. Um, I, I remember the date specifically because it was the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi in New York. And at St. John, the, the, the Divine Cathedral, there's a giant pet blessing that happens every year. And it's a huge event for the, for the city and for that part of the world. And, you know, camels and dogs and cats and snakes and lizards and you name it, everything comes to the cathedral to get blessed. And... Um, I had the, the fortunate um, opportunity to serve uh, as part of the, the altar party, the serving party at that, um, that service on October the 4th. And um, <clears throat> towards the very end of the blessing time, uh, a group of firemen and rescue workers brought up 
um, several rescue dogs that had been working at Ground Zero and, um, and had them blessed uh, their cathedral. And part of that story that, that struck me so much is that, um, you know, rescue dogs are trained to find uh, survivors. You know, their, their, their reward comes from finding someone. And it turns out that the dogs at Ground Zero those first few days uh, were getting extremely uh, dejected because they were not finding any survivors at all. And so what they were doing is that uh, firefighters and rescue workers were hiding uh, under pieces of rubble uh, and acting uh, as though they had been found uh, for the dogs to get their reward and to continue to work. Um, it's just such a heartbreaking story um, because everyone who was going to Ground Zero uh, was expecting to save people. Um, and in, in honesty, there were very few people to save um, after, after those buildings came down. Um, there were very few survivors um, in total uh, that were rescued from the rubble itself. <clears throat> so uh, those dogs, you know, they, they represented uh, this sort of ongoing, um, I don't know, uh, sadness and, and frustration. Uh, and, and, and I don't know if the dogs were angry, but, but I know that, that other people were angry. Which makes me ask you the following question. Uh, so although you, I mean, this story is heartbreaking. I still, you know, it's, it's really hard to process. Uh, but it's important for us to understand the the magnitude of um, of such an attack and um, how horrible it is at not just the imagery but also in the detail the devils in the details um, so although you had a justified anger to retaliate and be so angry um, you still refused to go to war so tell us about your thoughts on the not in our name, anti-war movement, and why is that slogan? Yeah, so it was um, it was really interesting. Right after uh, right after September 11th happened, um, I was really really angry. Um, I had been at you know the plaza between the World Trade Centers within the last week before that, and it felt very personal to me uh, that that I was an intended target. Um, of the people who were trying to cause so much destruction. And, um, and the further I went down the path of anger in my head, that I realized that those are the seeds that lead someone down the path to uh, unspeakable violence. Um, if, you, if you take those seeds of anger and hatred and they get watered and they get um, continually fed, they grow. And so it was imperative um, to, to work against that, to make the choice to not go down that path. And so uh, in, in New York and in Washington DC and in large cities around the country, um, <clears throat> October the 4th 
um, at the cathedral, at the end of that service, the Bishop of New York um, stood up and said that we had started bombing Afghanistan. Um, and uh, people were in tears leaving that service and in that service. And it was in that choice to begin this bombing campaign in revenge less than a month after September 11th that led groups of us to begin organizing to hopefully try to make a different choice, to try to go a different direction. Uh, leading up to the 2003 um, war in Iraq uh, that kind of got wound up and wound in with September 11th, uh, even though there was no connection between the two. Um, it, we, we started building a movement and, and people came out by the millions uh, into the streets of New York, into the streets of Washington. And that movement uh, was collectively uh, the not in our name, um, you know, movement against the war in Iraq, against the war in Afghanistan. And what it meant to say, and what we were trying to say, is this, these actions do not speak for us. We do not call for revenge. We're not looking for more destruction. We don't want anyone to have to be uh, digging their children out from underneath more buildings. We want to make a different choice. And um, a lot of that not in our name movement was to, um, was to show uh, a lot of, of, of people from the Middle East and people from uh, all different areas of the Middle East that most Americans, or I don't know about most, but I know that a lot of Americans and the people who were standing there did not believe that, um, you know, being from a certain country uh, created uh, an idea that you were a certain type of person. Um, you know, we were, we were trying to say with our actions that just because America is doing something does not mean that, that every person in this country supports those actions. It's interesting because I know that Paul Krugman today uh, is in the New York Times <clears throat> uh, saying, or he put out a tweet that basically said most Americans uh, did not blame people from the Middle East uh, for September 11th. He's just wrong. Um, you know, the, the majority of people in this country were looking for someone to blame. The fans, the, the, the flames of hatred were being fanned every day in the news. Uh, images of, of um, you know, images of people uh, who didn't look like us uh, just to make us afraid. Um, you know, these images, these people saying, you know, that, you know, that, that, Everybody was celebrating in, in these different, you know, cities around the world that this had happened. We knew that there were people in danger. Uh, there were people, you know, Sikh men in, in, their, in their head coverings who were being attacked in New York. Uh, there were, it was just, it was happening and, and we were trying to stop it. Uh, so, Jeremy, I mean that what you've highlighted there is such a key point for peace, to know that um, 
any citizen around the world, we all experience that. There's a gap between the government and what people need. There's those gaps. But the hope comes when we start to focus on what the mutual uh, interest is. And when we uh, empower the peace builders on all sides. And that's what you did. You decided to go to Israel-Palestine and um, became intentional about nonviolence. Um, can you uh, tell us the story about what, like when you went to Palestine, what did you learn from that experience about that conflict? In yeah, at, at some point along the line, <clears throat> it occurred to me that marching in the streets was not going to be enough. Uh, it was not going to be what ultimately changed uh, the hearts and minds of people uh, to make a different choice. It also occurred to me that there were a lot of people uh, in their homes who wanted to do something, but didn't know what and didn't know how. So I started working with um, an amazing um, peace builder and sort of uh, matriarch in, in the peace movement named Janet Chisholm, who uh, was working at the time at Fellowship of Reconciliation in Nyack, New York. I would take the train uh, up, the, up the river, up the Hudson River to the Fellowship of Reconciliation headquarters. And uh, we started working together. Um, you know, I was supporting you know, this work on a program called Creating a Culture of Peace, which is a, um, a three-day uh, movement peace building workshop. And so that work continued. Um, we would do trainings and train trainers. And as part of that, I was invited to uh, participate in a interfaith peace builders um, pilgrimage to uh, Israel and Palestine. And it was a three week trip. And the first two weeks of that, um, it was a group of, of Muslims and Christians and, and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists who all went together uh, to visit uh, peace organizations all across um, Israel and Palestine. And it was phenomenal. For two weeks, uh, we met people who, you know, uh, mothers, uh, Israeli mothers against conscription uh, of all of their children into the Israeli army, you know, forced conscription for all girls and boys is required. Uh, and they didn't want to see that happening anymore. Um, you know, all these different organizations. And then uh, we visited Ramallah, we visited Hebron, um, you know, we visited, you know, you name it. But we ended up in Bethlehem in our third week. And um, we were working with an organization called the Holy Land Trust. And uh, we were invited by the Fatah Youth League uh, to come out and participate uh, and look, watch some of their trainers do their work and then uh, work with them on, on facilitation skills. And so we had about a week of spending time in Bethlehem doing that work. And I was overwhelmed. Um, the lessons kind of, kind of go back uh, to the kind of foundational work that was happening in the civil rights movement. Uh, in the 1960s, um, in the 1950s even. 
prior to that. Um, what most people don't know is that almost all of the major uh, players that you saw on TV uh, and that were leading organizations had been trained in active nonviolence. Uh, they had gone to workshops and done, uh, you know, multi-day, sometimes week-long uh, facilitation workshops on how to do what they did. Most people don't realize that, um, you know, Rosa Parks uh, was a trained nonviolent activist. Uh, she had gone and been trained called the Highlander Center uh, in Tennessee. Um, a man by the name of Miles Horton, um, who started the Highlander um, School uh, for Activists, he started it for union organizers and then moved into helping uh, civil rights activists. She had gone to Highlander School. And so it was a plan. <clears throat> uh, Rosa Parks was not just uh, a tired black woman who happened to sit down in the front of the bus um, one day. Um, she, they knew exactly what type of situation they were looking for. Uh, it was a plan and they made this choice on this day for this to happen. If you watch any of the videos of the trainings that were happening, not only at Highlander, but at different places, Jason, um, what you see is a lot of young activists who are uh, going through the actions of what might happen uh, when they got into a hard situation. At the end of almost all those trainings, there is uproarious laughter. There is joy. There is um, a deep understanding that uh, they are going to win in the end. And when we got out into this school outside of Bethlehem, and I see, you know, 30, 40, 50 uh, Palestinian young people, teenagers, slightly older than teenagers, doing some of these same activities, going through some of the same workshops that had happened in the 1950s and 60s in places like Alabama and Mississippi, and then listening to them laugh and watching them, uh, the joy in their faces, it strikes me as incredible that these two groups of people who have lived under such oppression and such, um, such untenable situations in their lives, uh, not even being able to walk to the grocery store or go to school uh, without harassment or the threat of violence would be choosing to take a different path and finding joy in it. And, and, and it's, a, it's a, a lightness of spirit that, that you can see. And so uh, I walked away from that, that work in Palestine absolutely overwhelmed with a sense that here are groups of people who are absolutely nothing like what our government says they are. They were teenagers who were being silly and goofy, but who understood the seriousness of the work they were undertaking for justice and for peace, and who could hold both at the same time. And um, it was really, you know, one of the most powerful experiences that I've ever had in my life.
Thank you, Jeremy. I mean, there's a lot to unpack, unpack there. Um, yeah, I'm talking way too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. A lot to unpack, but we will unpack it together. I yeah. think one of the most striking things in that, um, the parallel between the civil rights movements and what, um, what you were intentionally doing in Palestine is that nonviolence is counterintuitive. When you are under oppression, your first reaction is anger and fear. Uh, and to arrive to a place to act um, without the immediate reaction is really counterintuitive. It requires intentionality and training in the case of Rosa Park. Um, what is also striking to me about Rosa Park training is that when you are facing nonviolence, of violence with nonviolence, you need to be empowered to do that. Um, if you're an average person um, and you're not, you can freak out, you can retaliate uh, with violence to push back, but to stay still and be a mountain um, grounded in your principle of nonviolence is, uh, requires us to, we have a responsibility to empower people who choose that path. And I just want to congratulate you and thank you for empowering Palestinian youth to, um, to, to break the cycle of violence by empowering them with that training. Um, what also strikes me is, um, what you shared about the Israeli mothers. And um, I know there's commonality between mothers across the world. Your mom was concerned for you and your sister, not knowing if you're dead or alive. And in the same case, those Israeli mothers who are advocating for their children not to be um, incorporated, like integrated into the military system in Israel. Um, can you share with us a story from um, of a Palestinian woman um, or mother, so we can see the humanity among all these mothers, and that what connects us is really much more powerful, and uh, we have an opportunity to cap capitalize on that. Yeah, one of the one of the trainers and facilitators for Holy Land Trust was a was a young man uh, named Ahmed Al Azza, uh, and. Uh, he lived in the in the Alaza refugee camp there in Bethlehem, and um, he was taking a few of us on a tour one day. Not the whole group, maybe three or four of us, and we're walking around. and And he said, "You know, do you do you want to come to my house and and have tea?" And and of course, we did. We would never have wanted to turn that opportunity down, and so. Um, he took us uh, into his building and, and into his apartment, and we got to meet his mother, um, who, who served us tea there. <clears throat> and uh, she had the look on her face, um, like many mothers around the world that you see, uh, which is one of, of, of weariness, um, of knowing that if things are going to change, um, their children are going to have to step up and step out uh, to be those uh, people who change things. And at the same time, um, she knew that every time her son left the house, um, she may not see him again. Um, you know, it is very common for, for activists like, you know, Ahmed to be uh, picked up 
for no reason, for arrested, for charges to be put on them that um, are just made up uh, to keep them from being able to do their work. And um, <clears throat> I think, you know, his, his just not being able to leave the house without fear of something happened is such a, 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 an incredible parallel um, to so many uh, black mothers in this country as well, um, who when their children leave the house, um, just living their life, they don't know on any given day if they will see them again. And, um, and the weariness that they feel um, from that experience of just not being able to live freely in the world. Um, and so much of this has to do with how we have um, militarized our, uh, what should be a public safety um, situation, both in this country and in countries around the world. Um, because we're looking for a certain type of outcome. Um, it's not an accident how we do things. It's not an accident um, in places around the world uh, where young men are picked up by the police um, for no reason because of who they are, who they represent, whether they're Palestinian, whether they're black, um, whether they're from the, the, the the wrong uh, ethnic tribe or, or whatever it is. Um, and so violence becomes a part of the system that we live in. And it makes it even harder to break out of that, um, that back and forth uh, revenge and retribution uh, because of the, the the injustice, the real injustice that has happened. Uh, what we know from history, however, is that violence um, very rarely achieves the type of goals uh, that bring real justice to any people who have been oppressed. And women are the most um, vital vehicle for um, for peaceful solutions. We've seen it in Liberia, uh, women who protested um, and wanted their, pressured the men to get over a peace agreement to come together and sign a peace agreement. Um, I believe part of that um, process was them stripping. So can you share with us uh, some of the um, stories that very recent story we had here in, in Oregon, in Portland with the, you know, the clash and the divide between the police and the protesters and the story of this women trying to alert us to um, to get our attention for something bigger than the divide yeah it, there's a there's a there's a thought in the in the the nonviolent um, movement building world that it takes all different types of people from all different places coming together, working towards a common goal to achieve what they want to achieve. And at times under great stress and under um, great pressure from authorities and otherwise, um, 
it's a pretty common experience that organizations and will who even agree on the big principles will start to fight with one another. Um, you know, so so a few weeks back in the middle of the protests, it feels like forever ago that this happened. Um, a, a woman uh, who who came to be known as Naked Athena um, stripped down in the middle of, of one of the downtown Portland streets, uh, only kept on a mask and a, and, a, and a kind of a hat in front of, of, of a line of police officers. <clears throat> and it was a spontaneous protest. Um, you know, she's been interviewed since, you know, basically saying this was something that just came to her. Um, she is a sex worker very positive about that experience and basically she said um, her body is something that um, she uses in the world uh, and she chose this night to use it um, in this way. Some photographers took photos of it. It became a story uh, all over the news and around the world. This very, uh, it, it's, it, it's an iconic photo. And at the same time, um, she started being criticized um, for taking attention away from uh, the Black Lives Movement. And, and so a lot of folks really started sort of um, saying, you know, she shouldn't have done this and how could she do this? And this is not about her and this is not about uh, white skin and, you know, very valid concerns uh, because a lot of times people do go for attention and they take attention away from uh, what is meant to be the main reason that people are there. But it reminded me a lot of, of how movements require different people and different tactics and that not everybody is called to do the same thing every time. The best example I could think of is that, you know, in the 1960s, there were at least four different organizations um, fighting for civil rights. There was the NAACP, there was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, there was the Southern Leadership, um, SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Committee, and then there was CORE. And all four of these uh, organizations at times had different understandings of what the right way to achieve justice was. Some of them uh, supported involving white people uh, in those movements. Others didn't. They didn't feel like that was uh, a way of empowering um, civil rights for black people. Um, what what kind of came out of that was this under this this there's always conflict about who gets to say what is the right way to participate in a protest and what is not. I know right now that in the middle of the pandemic, there are a lot of people that have not taken to the streets. Uh, for various reasons, but there are people who are needed in other places. There are lawyers working all over this city and all over the country for the National Lawyers Guild, different chapters doing amazing work, helping people who are in jail, fighting for the rights of people who are protesting, trying to keep the police from arresting members of the press you don't see most of them at a protest. And so is there a place for performative um, protests? 
Absolutely. Some people would say that, that most protests are performative, at least in part of what they're doing. They're meant to call attention. They're meant to um, be something that grabs someone that says, um, wow, what's going on there? Why is that happening? Um, probably the best example of, of how that changed the civil rights was uh, the Children's Crusade in, in Birmingham, Alabama, where um, elementary, middle, and high school kids, children, were uh, asked to take to the streets, um, and they were attacked by dogs and fire hoses and police officers, and the visuals of that happening in the streets of Birmingham some people say was a turning point in, in public perception around the civil rights movement. But while there were children and people out protesting, there were people also at home um, cooking meals for all of those people who were, um, who were coming back to churches all over Birmingham and uh, Greenville, Mississippi and Atlanta, um, coming back to take care of those people who had gone out and done that work. So, it strikes me as that we really do all need each other, that the more people who are involved in a movement, uh, if the vision of the movement and the mission of the movement stays consistent, uh, getting people on board to do all sorts of different creative activities and actions um, is never a bad thing at all. <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, when I saw that picture of uh, Naked Athena, I was thinking, wow, how vulnerable she is. Because mm. she could have been easily um, attacked from either side and she chose to be in the middle. And it made me start thinking about women and motherhood and like trying to draw like, what is she trying to say? I don't know what she was trying to say, but I know that she made me remember personally how moms and mothers don't differentiate between their children and it mm. was a powerful message for me to say that if we if we love our country any country if we love our community we love everyone in that community we love everyone in our country and um, a mom would not differentiate between her children and in that way I feel like she's sending a message to the protesters and to the police to say work together. This is a mission that affects all of us. And I think what you pointed out about um, movements, is not about who's leading them, it's about what they are trying to achieve. And if we are operating in the same system, if we are impacted by the same problem in different ways, we all have space to, to say something. Um, and we should all we should welcome everyone's voice and and that's evident in the not in our name movement i don't believe there was was there any um clashes in that movement i'm just you know there, there were <clears throat> there were always going to be you know kind of um conflicts that are very human conflicts about you know who's in charge of determining you know the direction that the that the march goes and who's in charge of deciding what time we start and uh, but it was a very, very um, uh, multicultural um, gathering of people from all different walks of life uh, to speak with one voice, to say one thing. And 
you could say if you chose to that the not in our name movement failed. We still stayed at war with Afghanistan until today. Um, we still went to war in Iraq and caused countless millions of deaths and, and disrupted entire uh, geopolitical regions of the world that, that, that are still uh, undergoing horrible violence. You could say we didn't achieve anything, but you could also say that, that we're always standing on the shoulders of the people who came before us. Um, that those people, many of those leaders of those movements and the people who were involved uh, years later became part of the Occupy movement and, and started a whole new uh, movement around change uh, around um, Occupy Wall Street. Then, you know, you see years later, uh, the tactics and the movements and the things uh, that you see all around the world starting to come together and how we fight systematic violence. Um, <clears throat> but the fight has, one of the things about violence is that violence is easy and violence is dumb. And when I say violence is dumb, I don't mean just like it's just a poor, bad choice. What I mean is it takes no, my, nothing of your mind no creative thought to be violent. Now you can say we think up all kinds of creative new ways to be violent to one another, but you know, just kind of striking back when someone strikes you, um, that, that takes no human actual spirit about what makes us human. It is a lot more challenging to creatively respond to violence in a way that uh, the oppressor cannot just hit back harder, right? There are just, it, it's just using that part of our human spirit to go a different direction and to do a different thing. I think of someone like, um, you know, Nelson Mandela or, or Desmond Tutu uh, in South Africa and that entire changeover. You know, Nelson Mandela had been in prison for over 20 years. You know, and, 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 and Desmond Tutu had seen apartheid up close and personal, had been a victim of it himself, right? Here are two men who came out of an extremely violent system and chose to try to walk a path that would lead in a different direction, um, chose to try to find a way for a country to move forward um, from its past and choose a new direction. You know, they say you can't change the past and that is true. You cannot change the past, but we can change the future. We can do something new and different to create a different path ahead of us. So it's just, a, it's just an important thing uh, to remember that it takes an actual choice, and it takes a little bit more hard work to choose the path of nonviolence. Thank you, Jeremy. It looks like we don't have uh, questions so far, so that mm -hmm. makes me wonder if we can, can just continue our conversation. And if you would like to ask questions, you're welcome to ask Let's them. So we'll just keep talking. Um, sure. So Jeremy, uh, does, does nonviolence work? Um, is it, does it really work? Because many people say, does it actually work? 
what did we learn from South <clears throat> Africa? Is there examples of it work? Like, what, what, what do you say about that? Because we were talking about um, Nelson Mandela. Well, I, mean, I will say this, that if you look in a world of 8 billion people, there are more people who are choosing nonviolence every single day than are choosing violence. And, and here's, what I, here's what I mean. We do statistics on crime, right? So when we see a crime percentage of how many people have committed a crime or have hurt someone, and we know that those percentages are low because a lot of crimes don't get reported or whatever that is. But a majority of people in the world live nonviolently every single day. Right. So really what we see is violence is the exception. Violence is, is the way that uh, people who can't figure out a creative way to, to bridge a divide or to or to to figure something out, choose to, um, uh, you know, fight it out somehow. Uh, and that hurts um women and it hurts children and it hurts the weak and it hurts the politically oppressed um more than it hurts anyone else right so when i say does nonviolence work the better question is does violence work and and the and the question is what to what end are we looking at right i mean when you say does nonviolence work it's like, well, work to do what? You know, violence hasn't gotten us very far uh, in, in, in our humanity. Really, if you look at most civilizations, as you mentioned earlier, it's the mothers who were staying home and caring for families and communities and who still are the, the matriarchs and the foundations of societies all over the world you know it's very rare that you see uh, one group of mothers going to war against another group of mothers in another place right that's not something that you that you find very often anywhere in the world or in history so nonviolence works to the extent that we want a world that is nonviolent moving forward the more people get to live freely, have their lives that they want. You know, violence obviously doesn't work. Um, you so know, Jeremy, and, and so what's the harm in trying something new? <clears throat> absolutely. So on that note, you've uh, you've there's tools for people to pursue nonviolence, and nonviolence happens at all mm -hmm. levels. Like you can do it in your home, you can do it in your organization, you can do it in your community. You can do it in your country. Um, and so is there, um, you've, uh, you are leading a course on nonviolence. Can you tell our audience about that and how they can be involved in this to be empowered to be the voice for nonviolence and the ambassadors for nonviolence in their, um, at, in their community? Yeah, so creating a culture of peace is, is a workshop program that is intended to help communities uh, build movements uh, for powerful nonviolent change. And when we think movements, many times we think people marching in the streets uh, and, and um, demanding justice or, or their rights or something like that. 
but but a movement can be anything that brings a level of of, of peace and and um, hope and joy to a community. Um, there's a there's a great story that we tell in the in the in the workshop uh, about a group of mothers uh, in Los Angeles whose you know community was was beset by gang violence uh, and having all kinds of trouble and and uh, what they ultimately they did is they they started a tortilla factory in their community uh, to both get people. Uh, to work, but also to bring people together for a common uh, goal to build up the, co the community itself. Um, that you wouldn't necessarily see on TV. Movements aren't meant uh, for trying to get media attention. Movements might mean that uh, you want something to change in your community so that your children have a safer walk to school or that um, you know, it, so it's about how we think about problems um, and, and how we solve them. So that's, that's what we do. Um, I think the best way would be to kind of get in touch with me directly. Um, you know, if you can post my, my email, if anybody would like to talk more about hosting a workshop at a rotary function or uh, having groups of people uh, come together. Um, I'm happy to sort of help get that organized. We have trainers uh, all over the country um, and we can train people to uh, put on these workshops as well. And um, they're fascinating. They have four sections. Um, it's they, we talk about violence, nonviolence. We talk about movement building and then we talk about action. Uh, what are the actions that you can take in your community? And that's a great uh, fit for uh, Rotarians who are part of the Rotary Action Group for Peace because we are interested and intentional about also creating a culture of peace. So that just uh, builds on the momentum. And so I encourage all the Rotarians and all the non-Rotarians watching who are interested in bringing nonviolence practices to their organizations and communities to really uh, contact um, Jeremy, we will, um, Anna um, or our team will be sending you a follow-up um, information on how to contact uh, Jeremy. And um, here's, uh, Jeremy, do you have a call to action for, um, you wanna say that directly to our audience? Your call yeah, to action. So th this is the, um, <clears throat> right. So this is the Creating a Culture of Peace website. It is undergoing some changes and some rebranding and some updating right now. But this would tell you a little bit about uh, what Creating a Culture of Peace has been doing for the past nearly 20 years uh, in communities all over the country. Um, the call to action is, so there's, it's twofold. So we had, um, we sit in these, in these strange times um, where governments and, and communities make decisions uh, that change the direction that the world goes. Um, after September 11th, um, our country made a decision to take a military approach to relationships around the world, to seek revenge, to fight, uh, to bomb, and that has had incredibly negative consequences um, for 20 years. More recently, in, in, in 2020, 
uh, we see where a choice of political expediency and how we deal with a, with a terrible virus um, has caused untold uh, heartache and pain and death, um, you know, in, in our country specifically. What I think the call to action is, is first off, it's understanding that we always get to make a new choice. We can choose to walk a different path than we have walked before. So the call to action is first to ask yourself, whoever's watching and whoever is, is, is contemplating this, what is a different action that I can take in my life, in my community, in the world, that will lead to a nonviolent future, a more peaceful future, not just for myself, but for people who are oppressed. <clears throat> you know, um, a, lot of, a lot of people right now just want to see protests end uh, because they're either inconvenienced by them or they feel like they're uh, counterproductive or whatever it is. Most of those people are white and most of those people live in places where uh, they're not inconvenienced by things like systematic racism, uh, by not being able to leave the house every day. Choosing to make a different choice, making that first step is the first step in any action plan. The next step is to recognize that all movements take so much work in so many different directions. You know, your, your part of the movement might not be going and marching in the streets. It might be talking to your family members. It might be, um, you know, hosting a community forum and inviting your neighborhood, well, putting your neighborhood on a Zoom uh, gathering, I guess now. <clears throat> um, but but taking the first step forward and saying, you know, I don't know how to fix these problems by myself. You know, let's try to do something together. Let's build a community of peace moving forward. So call to action, learn about movements, learn about um, what it takes to succeed and what does success look like. As you're speaking, and when you mentioned COVID-19, um, you reminded me of an article I wrote earlier when it first started. And um, it's a, so it's a virus. And if you think about uh, violence uh, as a virus, you know, we've taken um, actions towards the pandemic. We've given uh, people information, you should wash your hands, you should put a mask, you should social distance. So there was some, uh, steps that we had to make to prevent the spread of the virus. And in the same way, if you think of violence as this uh, seed in us, that is the human nature. Uh, it's normal for us to feel angry after, it's, it is a human reaction to feel angry and sad and confused um, and want to retaliate, but we need to pause and think, how can we not spread that virus into, um, into our community, into other people, into other nations, and really be intentional about that. And so what you're giving us here is um, a procedure, the training of nonviolence is that it, it is really intentional about what are the steps 
how can we increase our threshold of resilience to be susceptible to violence, really? Um, and so um, based on that, I think I got a, a question now. Thank you, Jay, for asking. So he's asking, um, there's tools, but with disinformation, the message gets uh, thwarted. Is that uh, thwarted? And uh, any yeah. idea? Huh? Thwarted, any, I think is what that says. Yeah. What's that? What does that mean? I, I don't know that word. Uh, uh, throw, thrown off track, basically. Okay. <clears throat> um, any idea? Any any idea to ensure the message stays true and the message intended is the one delivered? So that's an interesting question about how can we maintain the tools um, relevant to the principle? Because people, even within peace movements, there are people who are not uh, necessarily uh, grounded or guided by the higher value. Sometimes they're guided by recognition or guided by, I don't know, uh, other intentions that are not necessarily Peace is not really, nonviolence is not really the priority, but their personal intention. So how, how, do, you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, most, most nonviolence trainings or even civil disobedience trainings that you will go to uh, put on by any reputable organization uh, actually include uh, a personal pledge <clears throat> that people make um, that they have to um, agree to abide by to be a part of this particular group or not. So, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. has like seven principles of, of nonviolent action. And uh, even way back uh, in the day when, when, when the first, the, these movements are started, <clears throat> nonviolent action is, is a values choice. It is not an active, and it's not an accident. And so, like I said, most organizations and most training groups have um, set principles that they expect the people who are going to either use their name or, or go out and try to work from um, will abide by. And, um, you know, there's not like a, there's not like nonviolence jail that you're going to go to when you don't abide by those things. Um, but it becomes something of, of, a, of an honor code that says we need to do this. We stay together on this path. So, thank you, Jeremy. So we have a few minutes left before we wrap this up, and I want us to end at an inspirational note. So, is there any story, a beautiful story, an inspiring, uplifting story that you can share with us from September 11 um, that you carry with you to for um, inspiration or you share you remember when you feel um, it doesn't have to be September 11 it could be Palestine it could be Namibia it could be anywhere um, a story that touched you um, and impacted you had an impact on you that you carry with you in your heart yeah one of the one of the groups that that um, that creating a culture of peace worked with very early on after September 11th was um, the September 11th Families for Peace. And this was a group of, of family members of people who had died on September 11th, um, who had committed themselves to speaking with one voice uh, about not taking revenge 
uh, in the name of, of these September 11th families. And um, I don't know where they found the strength uh, and the internal uh, peace and fortitude uh, to make that choice very early on, within the months after this happened. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, they, 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 there were no funerals or they were right after, you know, memorial services that were going on. Um, I also think about the fact that um, all of the people who died on September 11th got up that day uh, thinking that it was just going to be uh, another normal day and that their, their lives were tragically cut short by violence uh, in a way that they could not foresee. What that helps me to remember and how that inspires me knowing that um, many of their families spoke out and, and for peace is that we are given today to do the work of peace. We're not given tomorrow. Uh, we're given the time that's in front of us. We're given the opportunities that are in front of us and we are asked to go out and search for new opportunities. Um, so I hope that, that anyone watching today um, who I know many of us are feeling hopeless these days. Um, many of us are feeling like when will 2020 ever end? Um, you know, this is, a, this is a, a hard year, but the world is counting on us to not let violence and not let destruction destroy us. The world is counting on us to take new and creative and innovative steps to change the world so that 2021 doesn't look like 2020. And 2025 doesn't look like this year either. Um, it's taken us a long time uh, to get 2020. Uh, most of these problems overnight, and we're not going to solve them overnight. But every day we make a choice for nonviolence and peace towards a nonviolent and peaceful world. So that is that is my hope for everyone. Thank you, Jeremy. You you're, you just uh, triggered a thought in my mind. I, I don't know if it's Desmond Tutu or not, but I've heard it somewhere um, that if you want to make peace, you don't talk to your friends, you talk to your enemies. Um, and that's a um, that's important lesson for us to remember. Is there any lesson you, uh, I know that Desmond Tutu is one of your heroes. Um, is there any lesson uh, or thought from Desmond Tutu that you'd like to share with us? You know, he, he wrote a book um, called No Future Without Forgiveness uh, that, that helps me to remember that so many of the ways we act in the present come from the pain of the past. Um, that the pain and the hurt and the anger and the frustration that has um, lived within us, uh, that has been watered by um, see watered by, by, by frustration and ongoing injustice. Um, if we can find a way within ourselves to let that go, to not forget about it, but to realize that it is the anchors of anger and frustration and pain 
that keep us from sailing into a new future. Um, and if we can, if we can do that, if we can let that go and move forward, we will have a different world. Um, I think it was, it was Nelson Mandela. Um, and, and I, this is one of those hopeful quotes that said, uh, everything seems impossible until it's done. Yeah. And so, uh, if we can keep going and realize that a different world is possible, uh, then we can make it so. By the way, that's one of my favorite quotes for Nelson Mandela. I mean, I, I love this quote. It's perfect. Uh, so one last question. What is your dream for our world, Jeremy? If you would envision our world and the world you dream of, the dream that you wish for our world, what that would be? Uh, it would be um, everyone having uh, enough, enough food to eat, uh, enough uh, love for one another. Um, it would be a world where we looked at one another uh, and uh, looked beyond our differences to see the in each person that we come across. Um, humanity uh, is not, I believe, uh, a group of people who uh, naturally hate one another. Um, we, are, we are trained to hate one another. I would love to see a world where, um, where we didn't, where, where we, we cared for one another um, and, and our disagreements uh, over one thing or the other thing were dealt with um, with generosity, with uh, courage, uh, and with peace. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a big dream, but it's not, nothing is impossible. And I know I said it was one last question, but I have one more question. And, that's that, okay. that is, and that's the message that you'd like to uh, send to the victims mm -hmm. and the families of the victims of September 11th. And the people who are, I know you personally um, experienced pain yourself uh, every September 11. Um, is there a message of comfort or um, a special message for the people who've suffered that day and continue to suffer on, on this memory? I think that the message that, that, that gets me through that I hear from, from my friends who, who did that work and the message I would say is that you are not alone. Um, so many times when we experience trauma, uh, when we've had an experience of loss, uh, it is easily easy to feel isolated. Uh, it is easy to feel like people forget uh, you. Um, you know, that message of, of never forget that everyone kind of trots out on September 11th um, as sort of a, something to put on a bumper sticker. Um, the people who experienced September 11th by losing family members, uh, by working at Ground Zero, uh, we have different memories that we can never forget. Um, and that bonds us together. And so I would say, uh, know that you're never alone. Know that even 20 years, 19, 20 years later, um, I know there are people I can reach out to in a minute that I haven't spoken to in years. 
uh, that will that will support me, and um, we're all here for one another. Thank you, Jeremy. And I want to echo this message because although I wasn't there, your pain is mine, and your the mothers who are terrified that day, the young people, um, they remind me of of my people. They remind me of other people around the world who experience the same pain. We're all human, and we all experience pain and love. And today is just a reminder of, uh, of peace hour as our only path forward. Um, and division and conflict is, is leading us nowhere but pain. So um, Jeremy, I really wanna thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with us today. It was an honor to have you. Um, and now I'd like to just wrap this up with um, our audience. Um, and here we go. Um, I want to emphasize the lessons we've explored today with Jeremy. Um, we should never forget 9-11, and we must never forget the lesson that peace is the only means for our collective survival. Thus, peace is the most urgent call to action and the only solution to violence. Thank you for joining us for another enlightening conversation with Jeremy Locus on Together for Peace. With your generous and dedicated participation, Together for Peace has been a wonderful success in creating captivating conversations for peace building worldwide. Thank you for making Together for Peace realize the power of turning our living room conversation, living room, uh, in living rooms into platforms for positive peace, education, collaboration, and action. To continue the momentum and conversation, please fill out our survey subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this episode with the world. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter so, so you can stay up to date on the latest Together for Peace news. As we continue to celebrate International Peace Day's theme, Shaping Peace Together, please join us next week when we interview Vincent Cheravalle, uh, a researcher at the Los Alamos Research Laboratory where we will be exploring the intersections between science, technology, and peace. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, keep your smile big and your heart open. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone, and continue to wage peace. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, everybody. Peace, Reed. Thank you, everyone. Peace to you. Thank you.